0: Welcome to the show. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is away. We will be joined in just a moment by Leslie and Newman, whose new book is Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard. First... Just a couple minutes of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish wrap because I would like to bring to your attention, and this is an actual physical newspaper. those who have never seen it, but I don't know before. what it looks like, Bill. Yeah, I know. It's I first know. time. I know, Dan. It's, 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 it's an educational experience. It place. is. Yes. Okay. So, a couple things I'd like to point out in today's mm-hmm. Gazette. Uh, front page story DA presses for legal drug use locations. Congratulations to District Attorney David Sullivan testifying at the legislature yesterday for legal drug use locations to try to uh, ameliorate the disastrous effects of fentanyl and drug deaths here in our our community. Also, on the front page of the Gazette, State Picks Motel for Homeless Shelter, Dateline Hadley. Thanks to the forward-looking people who have taken it upon themselves to say, yes, there will be housing and we will address the homelessness issue here in Western Massachusetts. So, some good news here, whether or not the uh, legislature will take David Sullivan up on his importuning for what is necessary to uh, take on the drug scourge. I don't know, but still, thanks to him for taking on that fight. Two other pieces in the Gazette I think that is really useful to note. First, redesign Next Step in City's Evolution, an uh, opinion piece by uh, Councilor-at-Large, Marissa Elkins. A really, I think, helpful and thoughtful discussion of the redesign for downtown Northampton and then not finally because there's actually just a mountain of uh, important information and I think opinions as well in today's Gazette there is a guest column by Dina Friedman with the title Losing the Light it is really quite brilliantly written and I suggest either on GazetteNet or an actual physical newspaper that you read (laughs) it Losing the Light a guest column by Dina Friedman about where is the light in these dark times? Really interesting, extremely well written. So, talk about extremely well written. Let's turn to one Leslie Newman, who will be at the Odyssey Bookshop for a book reading, a signing, a and a discussion on Thursday evening, tomorrow evening. Your new book, award winning author, poet, essayist, novelist, anything else I'm missing here? Uh, Leslie and Newman. Uh, the new book is Always Matt. You have written a lot about Matthew Shepard. He is a real presence in your life, and I think in the lives of many. Tell us why.
1: So I was at the University of Wyoming the day that he died in 1998. I was the keynote speaker for Gay Awareness Week. So I was supposed to meet him. He was on the committee that invited me to come speak. So when I spoke, all the LGBTQ kids were Kids, I should say students, were in the front row. And there was. We're getting to an age, Leslie. Yeah, you can say kids. kids. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I was young then, 25 (laughs) years ago. Anyway, they left an empty seat. And I kept looking at that seat and thinking, that's Matt's seat. And so something just happened inside me that I felt this huge connection to him. And his voice was silenced forever. I have a very loud voice. And I need to use it to amplify his story.
0: The story is one that lives. And I'm wondering whether you think that's because of how horrifying his murder was or for some other reason.
1: Well, it's partly that, you know, there was a lot of drama around that story. First of all, the the crime was so horrific. and Maybe
0: maybe for our listeners who don't remember, you want to briefly describe that?
1: Sure. So Matt was kidnapped from a bar. He was uh, by two young men, the same age as he was, 21, who pretended to be gay, lured him into their truck... Uh, beat him severely, poked his eye with a pistol immediately to show, them, show him how serious they were, stole his wallet, tied him to a fence, continued to beat him, stole his shoes, and drove back to town. He was not discovered for 18 hours. Um, he was taken to a hospital. His injuries were too severe for the hospital in Laramie, so he was taken to a larger hospital in Colorado. He um, never regained consciousness. He remained in a coma. For six days, he died with his parents by his side. There was so much drama. Um, would he live? Would his parents make it? They were in Saudi Arabia at the time. Um, the president called the Shepherd family. Ellen DeGeneres made a speech on the White House steps. There was uh, vigils everywhere. So the, the story got bigger and bigger. And then his funeral and the trials of the two murderers, Uh, were picketed by Fred Phelps, so it just kind of went on and on and on. Fred Phelps,
0: the right-wing minister who uh, had demonstrations against uh, LGBTQ persons at their funerals.
1: Exactly, exactly. And so then Angel Action, which is a silent political action where people dress as angels with six-feet wings, stand in front of the protesters, silently protesting their messages. So again, the story just got bigger and bigger.
0: It also lives, it continues to live. I mean you're talking about twenty five years ago, and yet the story is still poignant and still one that resonates today and I'm wondering in our world where attention spans can be a matter of seconds, why does this story why does Matthew Shepard live
1: well, I think other
0: in it- addition to yeah sure it was a big it was a big news story at the time, but it's still in our consciousness you're still writing about it so. Can you elucidate that for us?
1: Well, a couple of things. I think uh, largely because of his parents, Judy and Dennis, who started the Matthew Shepard Foundation on December first, 1998, which would have been Matt's 22nd birthday. And it was just a couple of months after this horrible thing happened. And they have kept his name out there um, because he wanted to work for social justice. So they are doing that in his name. Also, the Laramie Project, so Moises Kaufman, went out there with his theater troupe again just a couple of months after Matt died and and conducted all these interviews and made this theater piece, which is um, produced all over the country in many communities, uh, using community members to play the part of a lot of the roles.
0: Leslie Newman, your new book is titled Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard. It is a gorgeous book, and I'm wondering if you could tell us why you wanted to create this book, in this form, at this time.
1: So I was actually asked by Jason Marsden, who was the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, oh, a good 10 years ago, to write a picture book about Matt. Because we all know that... um, it's never too early to educate people to, or kids to be um, loving and respectful and accepting. And so I tried for years and years and finally came up with a text. And my editor, Howard Rees at Abrams, said, I love this. I want to do it. It's not a picture book. It's a family book, meaning that families would read it together, discuss it, and hopefully become inspired to make the world a better place in Matt's name.
0: How do you write a book that's for all ages?
1: Uh, you know, I think poetry is the way to go. Poetry is the is the uh, key that unlocks that door.
0: These are beautiful paintings in this book. Can you tell us about that, please? Because they really make... The book is just not a book. It's an experience.
1: So I think of it really almost as a prayer book. You know, the, t- the text is very sparse. It is a poem. And then um, Brian Brittigan did an amazing job. I was uh, lucky enough to be able to give him so much of my source material, which I had collected when I wrote October Morning, a song for Matthew Shepard. And then he just used a beautiful muted um color palette and he just you know the story was really important and affected him as well he was a young gay man growing out growing up in the west um and he just put his heart and soul into it and it's gorgeous it is an
0: absolutely gorgeous book leslie and newman will be at the odyssey bookshop tomorrow evening thursday at seven o'clock for a book reading signing q a and discussion as well appearing with you i believe tomorrow at the odyssey will be peggy gillespie who is the founder of the Family Diversity Project, whose new book is Authentic Selves, celebrating trans and non-binary people and their families. What's the connection between your book, Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard, and Authentic Selves, celebrating trans and non-binary people and their families?
1: So, first of all, Peggy's book is absolutely gorgeous, the photos, the interviews. Um, But I think both books are trying to do the same thing, which is to give this message that all people should be accepted, respected, and celebrated.
0: Your new book, Matthew Shepard, is about Matthew Shepard, titled Always Matt, is a continuation of work you've done and poems you've written about uh, Matt Shepard. I'm wondering if there is something in this book that taught you something about either the LGBTQ community or about people who responded to Matt Shepard or in some other ways taught you something that you didn't expect when you set out on this endeavor to create this really quite magnificent book?
1: So first of all, I learned a lot about Matt because the book is more about his life than about his death, which October morning was really about the hate crime that killed him. And so I wanted to... Focus more on his life, and I think the connection that meant the most to me was connecting with um, Jason Collins, who who's, who's that? So Jason Collins wrote the forward, and he is the first um, national, um, not WNBA NBA basketball <laughs> player. I always have to get the, get right. that acronym. He's, he's not with the WNBA. No, he's not he's with just, the WNBA, but, but he's a big fan of the WNBA. Yes, yes, he is, <laughs> yeah. and
0: he is a superstar. Uh, National Basketball Association.
1: Yes. And so he was player. the first openly out player. He came out in a article that he wrote for Sports Illustrated, and he had chosen the number 98 to wear on his jersey in honor of Matt, because 1998 was the year that Matt died, and he never told anyone. So he, as he says in his forward, he was hiding in plain sight. So I got to spend a lot of time with him over Zoom, and he, he's just a great guy. And I just saw the reach of Matt's story because it meant so much to Jason Collins.
0: Tell us a, just a bit more about that. I mean, there you are talking to someone who is a superstar it, and and a really well-known uh, celebrity and a very famous person who is talking to you about his coming out in a culture and at a time where that was not easy. I'm wondering if that affected you.
1: Oh, I was just very touched by his story and he talked about when Matt murdered he it really drove him further into the closet for a really long time. I mean you know he was scared and when I spoke out there in 1998 I remember the next day I had to fly to Albany to give a talk because it was like gay pride week month whatever and 2,000 miles away, the young gay men I met were petrified. They were so terrified. And I think, you know, news traveled differently back then. We didn't have the Internet and cell phones the way we do now. Rumors were flying. It was such a violent crime that people were really scared, and that fear stayed with them for a long time.
0: I'd like to ask whether you see a connection between the hatred that led to the murder of Matthew Shepard and the kind of vitriol and vengeance being expressed today over the war, the Hamas-Israel war. Do you see a connection there?
1: Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think hatred is hatred. I don't understand hatred. Um, and I think hatred has been unleashed, certainly in this country, by the previous administration. And I think it's really important for us all to take a stand and work hard to create a better world, a world that we want to live in.
0: We've been speaking with Leslie Newman. Her new book is Always Matt, a tribute to Matthew Shepard. She will be at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, along with Peggy Gillespie, who is the editor and a contributor to Another quite marvelous book, Authentic Selves, Celebrating Trans and Non-Binary People and Their Families. Leslie and Newman, it is always a treat to talk to you, and your book is amazing. I hope it is a fabulous, fabulous reading and a QA and a and discussion at the Odyssey. It should be. I know it will be. Thanks so much for your book. Thanks so much for you being you. We'll be right back.
2: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
3: When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime.
0: Art and history, material objects that tell a story, porcelain, silk, pearls. In Sally Wen Mao's new collection of poems, The Kingdom of Surfaces, these material objects of art frame an important conversation on beauty, empire, commodification, and violence. The Kingdom of Surfaces is a finalist for the Maya Angelou Book Prize. Broadside Bookshop presents author Sally Wen Mao, reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces, this Thursday at 7 at the Edwards Church. Following her reading, Sally Wen Mao will join in a conversation with novelist and poet Ocean Vuong. The reading is free and open to the public, but space is limited. So reserve your seat now at broadsidebooks.com. Sally Wen Mao, reading from The Kingdom of Surfaces. Plus a conversation with Ocean Wong this Thursday at 7 at the Edwards Church, presented by Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop.
4: Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together.
0: Welcome to NPR, Northampton Poetry Radio, with erstwhile Poet Laureate, Rich Michelson. Rich Michelson, you have two very special guests with you and us today. The pleasure of the introduction, the microphone, it's yours.
5: Thank you, Bill, and hello. Um, Two very special guests indeed. Um, My guests are Rabbi Benjamin Weiner and Jenna Schwartz, uh, who will be reading... This coming Saturday, let's put this on your calendars right now, this coming Saturday at the Jewish community of Amherst, which is on uh, Main Street in Amherst, 742 Main Street, at 7 p.m., they will be reading uh, with another Jewish poet by the name of me, uh, Richard Michelson. So um, we're going to have some fun. Uh, this is an evening of poetry at the Jewish community of Amherst. I, everyone is welcome. You do not have to be Jewish to come. How's that?
0: Yeah. Uh, a lot um, of people say you don't have to be Jewish to be Jewish. <laughs> uh, okay.
5: And, um, you know, it's a tough time. It's a tough time, obviously, for all of us. Um, and, uh you know, I think you it's know, a good time to for everybody to come in here, Jewish poets, and hear what we have to say. We're not. This is not going to be a Israeli. Palestinian discussion, uh, which uh, the rabbi led beautifully uh, to the congregation just uh, on Monday night. But um, but but this is Jewish poets writing about Jewish history, about what's in their mind. Uh, Let's start with the rabbi. Hello, Ben. Um, Hi, Rich. So um, Ben, it happens to be my rabbi. I am a congregant at the Jewish Community Amherst. Uh, He is also a James Joyce scholar. Uh not your typical rabbi in that. He's uh studied literature and uh and his sermons are are absolutely amazing. In fact, uh well before this was planned when Ben started, uh, he is in fact the longest running uh rabbi that the JCA has had. I think we just passed that milestone last week or somewhere is about there. And um and I always thought that his um, his sermons were like poetry. So, tell me a little bit. Uh, did you, when you were studying in school, did you write poetry then?
6: Uh, n- not really, Rich. I'm I'm kind of more of an occasional poet. I never really kind of cultivated myself as a poet. It just sort of seems to happen from time to time. Um, and most recently, I think I've gone through a spate of writing a number of poems, uh, largely. Larg- of Jenna and uh, another poet uh, you might know, Doug Anderson, who have kind of taken me under their wings and kind of helped me to to, to find a poetic voice, but it's still very spiritual. All
5: right. Well, I'm you have two back. great teachers. Doug has been on this show uh, and is a wonderful poet and uh, a dear friend of mine. We share poems every Monday night. We've been doing that for about 25 years now. And
0: um, Can I note, just note for Doug Anderson, who became famous, I think, first because of his writing about the Vietnam War, yes. which is extraordinary.
5: Extraordinary. And um, so so let's let's see, and Jen, as you also, you're a teacher, so uh, let's see how well they're doing. Do you have a short poem you want to read now just to give us a sense of what people are going to hear?
6: Maybe? Yeah. Yes, sir, I'd be glad to. So first, thing, I just want to point out, I don't know if I really am a Jewish poet. You know, my yeah. theme's don't necessarily my sermons do but my poems don't necessarily so this is a poem I wrote uh, when my son who's now 11 was getting into the Beatles uh, a great deal and it's called Slash McCartney and it goes like this Uh, after a hard day's night and help I thought to show him what his 15 year old dad used to look at in the wee hours on VHS while wondering if that was what it's like to trip he still doesn't know and so I dialed up the blue meanies on YouTube and then (laughs) the theme song, bathed in a montage of snippets in the film, and in one of them, the fab four wash in the sea of time and growing wild white beards in a single mystic bout of aging. And it was then I felt it, an inexorable grief, looking at him with the beady glasses who was never to grow a white beard in life because, you know, a warm gun. And I thought about Paul alone on the stage of the rock hall of fame almost 30 years ago still dewy as they said and even now aging almost like a eunuch with his smooth cheeks despite the beard of let it be when he inducted his friend who was absent but for the miasma of unshed tears that followed him from one side of the podium to the other so he had to sway to their opposite to avoid being drenched and that night of the fame seeking lead which i remember as nothing more then a strange mood of grown-ups at the breakfast table. And all of our partners in song, now lost in the void, behind the slash, beyond the sea.
5: You've been listening to Rabbi Ben Weiner, who will be reading this Saturday night at 7 o'clock at the Jewish community of Amherst, and uh, and Ben, yes, you are Jewish, you're a poet, that makes you a Jewish poet, uh, there's no way around that. Uh, and okay. also, at your synagogue, uh, we actually have a poet laureate, so uh, that's a little unusual. Hello, Jenna. Uh, Hello. So, so tell me a little bit about how that came about. How, how did you become uh, the JCA uh, Poet Laureate?
7: That's a, that's a great question. I, I think it was almost kind of by accident um, or just by, by circumstance, kind of uh, a moment of... Um, Rabbi Ben reached out to me during the first summer of COVID. Um, or maybe late that spring, but in 2020. And it was clear that we weren't gonna be able to gather for the high holidays in person. And um, he was putting a lot of thought into how to have Zoom services. You know, this was not something that we had ever done before or, or had to even consider. And um, he invited me to, to share a bunch of poems with him. Um, to do some writing and then he wove those poems into the course of the services. And, and I think that kind of, I, I'm not sure if the title, you know, is an official thing, uh, Poet Laureate, but, and I don't know if it was a chicken and egg thing, you know, if I was the Poet Laureate and then I read the poems or I, or that happened. And in any case, it's, it's kind of become a standing thing for the last, uh, I guess four, is that four, four years now? Um, 2020, one, two, three, yeah, four years. So it's been a real honor.
5: And I must say that the services are just beautiful to hear you uh, come in and read your poems during the services. And I'm especially impressed because you seem to uh, be writing, you know, it's almost like you're writing uh, your poems that will fit into the service. It's, you know, like an occasional poet um, in the formal way. Um, And now you're teaching a class at the JCA um, with other poets
7: uh n- n- sort of not exactly but I, I led a couple of workshops leading up to the high holidays this year to make space for congregants and other members of the congregation to come and explore their own relationship to the themes of the high holidays and and those those poets those poems as well became part of the services so we've kind of expanded the whole thing over the last few years
5: wonderful and and let's uh, let people hear your voice if we could uh if you have something to that. read now
7: yeah, I'm going to read a poem from a book I published in 2016, and a lot of the poems in this collection I actually wrote during the Center for New Americans 30 Poems in November Challenge, where you write a poem a day, and um, this was in the, the weeks leading up to and then just after Trump's election, so it was a pretty, um, as you all know, intense time. The poem's called They Say, they say don't negotiate with terrorists they say don't take the bait they say a bully is just a boy swinging his weight around the swing set they say don't talk with your mouth full they say it takes two to tango they say how short. they say he said and she said they say sign the petition they say ignorance is bliss they say every penny counts They say children don't miss a thing. They say the walls have ears. They say we will take that into account. They say can we get that in writing? They say save one life and you've saved the whole world. They say it began with the word. They say love wins. And when I hear this, love doesn't play. And what I hear is love doesn't play because love is not a game. They say love is patient, love is kind and that That
5: is when I start paying attention. That's Jenna Schwartz, who will be reading an evening of poetry at the Jewish community of Amherst this Saturday uh, at 7 p.m., 742 Main Street in Amherst. Everyone is welcome. Uh, This is an in-person event and also will be available to listen to online online. Assuming we find a tech person who can uh, who who can um, put it out there uh, quickly, Jenna, um, can you give me a sense of the difference between when you're writing a poem versus a prayer? Is there a difference in your mind? Um, because so many of your poems are prayers.
7: That's such a good question. I think it's it's definitely a continuum for me. Um, I'm not sure all of my poems are prayers, but I'll, yeah, it's a—it's a little bit of a fruit, you know. Are all—all all apples or fruits, or you know, not all fruits or apples? Kind of question. So it's hard to answer. But um, the poems I've—I've I've written specifically with the high holidays in mind um, have definitely been inspired by uh, liturgical aspects of of those holidays. Um, but I often do—I often do come to poetry writing as a form of prayer, which for me is a way of, you know, in the spirit of uh, Mary Oliver paying attention.
5: Well, uh, it will be absolutely wonderful to be reading with you. We've read uh, together in the past. Uh, I will be reading from my new book, Sleeping As Fast As I Can. Um, Jenna Schwartz, again, is the poet laureate officially now we have just made that official uh we're going to make a t-shirt uh of the Jewish community of Amherst uh rabbi ben this is your first out poetry reading so uh, um nervous
6: ready why well, i, I... I just hope people aren't too shocked.
5: (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) your congregation knows you by now. Nothing will shock us. And uh, I think the rest of the uh, community is welcome and will enjoy your words, as I always do, Um, and uh, hoping everyone can join us. Uh, Again, Rabbi Benjamin Weiner, Jenna Schwartz. I'm Richard Michelson, reading from my new book, Sleeping As Fast As I Can. Uh, Just as a little aside, I have a National Jewish Book Award and was a poet
0: laureate too. So there we
5: go, come and hear me, come and hear these poets, and and we welcome everyone.
0: And let me make one last comment, if I might. Rich's new collection is amazing, I've read it. Sleeping As Fast As I Can, really, congratulations. I can't wait. For this Saturday's, when is I'm sorry, Saturday. When is the event at JCA?
5: It is at the JCA at seven o'clock, Main Street Amherst. There'll be a short havdalah service. What day before uh, that Saturday, this coming Saturday? Um, so, uh, for those who don't know, can you tell us in one sentence, uh, Rabbi, what a havdalah service is?
6: Havdalah is a very brief ceremony that we, a very beautiful and brief ceremony, we used to end the Sabbath and the Shabbat. And so, since it's Saturday night, we'll do that. First, and then we'll go on to the uh, secular revelry poetry reading.
5: And the key word for everyone who's coming, it's brief. You heard that, okay. (laughs) Plus, there are refreshments (laughs) afterwards. And as I like to say, what's not to like? A brief service, refreshments, poetry. Everybody come, join us. Thank you all for being with me today.
0: This indeed has been NPR, Northampton Poetry Radio, hosted by our erstwhile Poet Laureate, Rich Michelson. We'll be right back.
8: That love is blind.
2: Well,
9: I don't know, but I say
2: love
8: is kind.
2: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
4: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Families in need of emergency shelter are being sent by the state to live at the Knights Inn in Hadley. The state's Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities plans to place more than 30 individuals at the Route 9 motel because the state's emergency shelter system is nearing capacity. Hadley Town Administrator Carolyn Brennan has assembled a task force to address the basic needs of the people living there, made up of members of the town's public safety departments, building commissioners, schools, and others. A dozen school-aged children are among the people moving into the nights Inn. The state will pay all costs associated with the housing, food, supplies necessary to care for the displaced people. Northwestern DA David Sullivan spoke at a statehouse hearing supporting the placement of safe drug consumption sites as urgent and necessary. The proposal includes a 10-year pilot program for supervised community injection sites to help prevent the spread of infectious diseases and potential overdoses. Similar sites have opened in New York and Rhode Island, while Massachusetts policymakers consider the legality of the sites from the federal government. Deerfield voters approved the borrowing of up to $5 million for road repairs after this summer's storms had a detrimental impact on the roadways. The borrowing must also pass at an upcoming special election. The town meeting also included a vote on the town acquiring the St. James Church on North Main Street with $420,000 in Community Preservation Act funds, which residents also approved.
6: Well, we're going to be in for a warm day today. Highs are getting into the high 60s, potentially even the low 70s. We're going to be seeing a lot of cloud cover, but that won't let you escape from the heat as we see temperatures in this evening go into the high 40s and the low 50s. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP.
4: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
8: Find local news and local
10: talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project the cost to repair
4: the schools is estimated at 80 million and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students.
2: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts.
8: Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, corporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass.
2: Your pet isn't just a pet, they're part of your family. Most of the pet food on the market is cooked at high temperatures, which kills nutrients. A scoop of Dynavite is a three-in-one daily supplement, adding back key nutrients to your pup's health. Try Dynavite for free. Just pay shipping and handling. Learn more at dinovite.com slash radio. That's dinovite.com slash radio.
8: Happier, healthier with every bite. Over a million pets helped with Dynavite. Get the
6: appliances you need right away at Lowe's. Explore the largest assortment of brands you trust, like Whirlpool, Samsung, LG, and A.O. Smith, in-store or online at the best values. Plus, take advantage of our everyday financing offers on top items, from refrigerators and laundry pairs to water heaters, and there's more. Get your new appliances delivered or installed quickly at your convenience, because Lowe's
2: knows home improvement. Subject to credit approval.
10: What's love
2: got to do with it? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Oh,
0: oh. This is our segment, Sex Matters, with our show's resident sexologist, Dr. Jane Fleischman. Oh, Dr. Fleischman, what is our topic of the day?
11: Are you sitting down?
0: Yes, I am sitting down.
11: <laughs> okay. Well,. I'm going to talk about sex over 60.
0: Okay. a Topic I've read about, yeah. Well,
11: you know, in my day job, Bill.
0: Which is what?
11: uh, I'm a sexuality educator. Okay. I mostly talk to older adults. Okay. And a lot of older adults are under this kind of misled misconception that it's aging that causes difficulties with sex later on. But I have a different view, of course. Of course you do, (laughs) Dr. Fleischman. (laughs) And I think it's more about what I call ageism than aging. That we have a a sense that when we get older, either if we hit menopause or andropause or our parts aren't working the same way or we can't move the same way we used to, it's all over for us. And in fact, the research proves just the opposite. So I thought today... The research proves what? Well... I'm so glad you asked. We're going to talk today about challenging ageism, one sexual pleasure at a time.
0: Okay. Just remember, we like this job and like to have it at the end of the segment, but I'm all ears.
11: Dan's ready. Dan is so ready. (laughs) My hand is on the button. So the first thing I want to say is I teach this stuff a lot in person and online. I have a bunch of different courses. And I always tell people to really begin by knowing themselves. And then learning how to talk and listen, learning how to ask for what they want and learning how to listen. So I want to give you all a little bit of the research today, but also I want to give you 10 tips. We'll see if we have enough time for 10 tips. So we might only have six tips, but we'll see. So according to the University of Michigan national poll that they did with AARP on healthy aging in romantic relationships, they found that seventy percent of people between the ages of sixty-five and eighty were in a romantic partnership.
0: What's the percentage?
11: Uh seventy percent. That's high. Well, listen to that. Seventy-five percent of those said that sex was an important part of their romantic relationship at any age. And, and, almost, and did they do future uh, no, f- did, they did, they, don't.
0: did they follow up and find out what was wrong with the twenty-five percent who didn't agree? <laughs>
11: they didn't do that. <laughs> well, if they just did, wondering. They did, they didn't report it. But forty percent of those were, almost 50%, were sexually active, and 75% reported being satisfied with their sexual life.
0: So what you're telling us, if I get these numbers, because numbers tend to make people's eyes glaze over a bit, uh, we have a lot of old people... Having sex. Having sex. Yes. And
11: and you know what's really interesting? (laughs) Dan,
0: stop smirking. (laughs) As a young person, just stop smirking.
11: (laughs) Dan, listen up. This could be your future if you're lucky enough to grow old. (laughs) But only 10% of these older adults were able to talk to their family or their friends or other people about the fact that they were having sex. So I thought that was quite interesting, too. Well,
0: but how often, as a young person, did you talk to your family about sex? Come on.
11: Right. I mean, of course, I'm not going to expect that these young people would talk to their parents. But maybe an older adult is a little bit more uh, sensitive toward what their younger, um, midlife um, children might have to say in terms of judgments because it
0: them. strikes me that when you say that older adults, um, a, a group that I've read about, um, uh, <laughs> me too, <Bill>. me too, <laughs> There we go, older adults don't talk to other older adults about sex. It strikes me that what's the difference in age groups? I mean, true, for, true. as a practical matter, true, true. when you know when you were in your forties and fifties, did you hang out and talk with your friends about sex? Did do most people?
11: Right. I think you're. I think you're onto something, which is that. We're not really taught that sex is like another topic that is about health and wellness. And what I've been trying to do lately is to increase this idea of an a, a umbrella of wellness that can include physical health, mental health, spiritual health, maybe financial health, and sexual health. And I haven't gotten that far. People haven't really bought into this, but I'm working on it.
0: Yeah, well, if you go to TD Bank and sit down and say, "Hi, I'd like to talk about sex," they're gonna. It's,
11: <laughs> they may not be that. It May not work that well, yeah. So, do you want some tips, Bill? Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Take notes. I'm gonna take notes, I'm gonna take notes. I'm okay. gonna take notes because
0: I'm gonna give them to Buzz when he gets back. Okay.
11: <laughs> Poor Buzz, missing all this good stuff. Um, tip number one: uh, what I call get the lay of the landscape. You know, contrary to popular belief. Older adults are sexual throughout their later years, as I just quoted from that recent report. And not only are people having sex, are they enjoying sex, but it's been shown that sex at an older age continues to improve overall health and well-being. And there was just a really cool article that came out in 2023 about sexual activity for older adults improving cognitive health, which you and I definitely want to know about, Bill.
0: Wait a second. More <laughs> sex, better quips on radio? I,
11: I'm. Oh, this is fabulous. And you might remember I, them? I can't, I can't. <laughs> That's cool for me. I can't
0: wait to go home today.
11: <laughs> I mean, if I could remember all the jokes that I would love to tell, <laughs> that would mean a lot more. Uh, so so really, in,
0: number one tip number one
11: is uh, learn the research, right? Know what's going on instead of adhering to these sort of ageist notions that it's all over a woman came up to me once at the end of a class that i did here at the senior center and she said my doctor told me that once i hit menopause it was all over for me for sex and i said
0: fire your doctor exactly please find a new doctor and i'm
11: so glad you got here tonight because that's the important thing to learn more so number one learn the reality number two Remember the Girl Scout pledge, be prepared. Now, you were never a Girl Scout, I know.
0: I, listen, my brother got thrown out of the Cub Scouts, and that was the end of, of my career. Of
11: course, of <laughs> course, your brother
0: did. Were you a Brownie?
11: Yes, I was a Brownie and a junior. And, um, much, and a Girl Scout? Yeah. And much, you are a Girl Scout? I, oh, and, my goodness. And much to you know my mother's displeasure, I left... You know, about 10th grade, because she was my leader. It was really terrible for her. Anyway, that's another show (laughs) we'll talk about. But when I was a kid, being prepared meant making sure I had all the right stuff. So when you want to have sex and you're an older adult, plan it out. It doesn't work so great spontaneously. So Make sure you have all your tools at your disposal, right your tissues, your water, your medications, you know, whatever food you might want to continue to have while you're enjoying some sexual pleasure, Lube toys, make sure they're all charged. Um, any medical alert devices, just in case. You never know how raucous you'll be. Um, perhaps your music and a Bluetooth speaker.
0: This reminds me a little bit about walking around as a teenager with a prophylactic in my wallet. For 10 years, <laughs> For right? For years. <laughs> just, just hoping. They don't work hoping. that well after
11: a while. And, and
0: there's the impression in the wallet. You can see that on all the teenage boys.
6: <laughs> really,
11: okay. Be prepared. Okay. Be prepared beyond that. right? Um, number three. Solo sex can be a gateway for you. For sexual pleasure, there may be no equal. So who knows your body better than you? And it can be equally good for pain relief. In fact, Dr. Beverly Whipple and her colleagues found that sexual stimulation can reduce chronic pain, and the neurochemical compounds released during an orgasm produce the greatest increase in pain relief, stuff like oxytocin. So Solo sex or masturbation has been reported to improve sleep, lower your anxiety, and help you get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll help you know yourself, which is really my very most important tip for all of us to remember that no one knows our body as well as we do. And our bodies change. Erotically, we change. In ma- Neurotically, we <laughs> change as well, but erotically, we change. Okay, okay. Um, number four. Sex can combat social isolation. This is a serious one. You know, During COVID, we saw that social isolation was exacerbated for many, many people, including older adults. But sex can combat that because really, finding a partner can be scary. And if you spend more time with your phone or your porn or your TV or the internet, maybe you need to try spending some time with real live people. So enlist your friends. Go... Find uh, a group that you really are interested in. There's a fantastic matchmaker here in the valley. You know, find something that is interesting to you, and then go do that. And maybe you'll find people there who are like you, who you might like.
0: Does the research show that there is a difference in the way that uh, people tend to end up in couples when they're older? Uh, in other words, oh. that they've been friends for years and oh, years, and then they become lovers? Or, or is yeah. that is that is there anything that huh. to that?
11: I don't know if I've ever read a study on that, but but I do know that a lot of older adults think that the best way to find a lover would be through internet or online dating. And I often say, slow down. That can be a real hornet's nest because you don't know exactly who people are. That photo that they look really good in was actually 30 years ago. <laughs> you, you just don't know what's going on. And and people also also, you know, could be taken advantage of it, and there could be some difficulty with that. But but in answer to your question, I, don't, I just don't know. It's a really good one. And I would say that because the research on older adult sexuality says that it's more. Uh, it produces more intimacy and more connection, that perhaps finding someone that you've been friends with for a long time, you know you're already like some of the same kinds of things you might like each other's bodies as well. I don't know, that'd be that'd be a great study. Yeah, good thinking.
0: We are speaking with Dr. Jane Fleischman, our show's resident sexologist. This is Sex Matters with Dr. Jane Fleischman. We'll continue our conversation about sex over 60 right after this.
2: The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
11: Here comes the money. You
2: could be one word away from $1,000. I thought I was going to have to go through a hip replacement or some painful, unsuccessful surgery or be crippled the rest of my life.
8: Electrical engineer Dan Vogler had awful arthritic pain in his hips, pain that not only affected him physically but also emotionally, and it spilled over even to his relationships.
2: I was almost mean. If you're in pain and other people don't sympathize with it, you're lashing out at the wrong people.
8: But then Dan found QC Kinetics with the latest advances in regenerative medicine, non-surgical treatments with lasting relief. felt immediate relief. I mean, within half a day, much of the inflammation and pain was down. And today, Dan says he's totally pain-free, living the life he wants. At the end of the fourth treatment,
2: I felt pretty much healed and enthused and was raving about QC Kinetics. I can
8: recommend them highly to anyone. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450.
7: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman.
0: Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe, and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk
2: department.
10: River Valley Co-op: Wild About Local. Everyone is welcome.
2: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
0: We continue our conversation with our show's resident sexologist, sex educator. Dr. Jane Fleischman. We are talking about sex over 60, and she had the top 10 list for uh, <laughs> things to recommend for sex over 60, and I think we're up to number five or six. Dr. Jane.
11: All right, let's take five, six, and seven together because I don't want to miss any of these. Five, is... And if
0: you could get this over more quickly, that <laughs> so... the truck on the blackboard here is just unbelievable. Okay.
11: <laughs> yeah, I can feel it. Um, lube comes in a tube. You know, um, lube doesn't always work personally. And so it's great to find something on um, over the counter that works for you. There's lubes now designed specifically for older bodies, and they can be a lifesaver. Uh, just remember, and they can prevent pain. Totally. I mean, any time that there's any kind of difficulty with your own personal lubrication, um, having that kind of pain will just turn you off from sex completely. So, so think about it as a pain reliever, and also remember, water-based lubes on all silicone toys and condoms. Okay. Number six, toys and tools. Think about I
0: need to note the day, Jane, sorry to interrupt, sure. the day you brought in the sex toys to the studio. That was fun. Yeah, that, that was, was, really was fun. Let's do that again soon. Yeah, okay.
11: I know, but the listeners couldn't see them, but it was super fun for us. Right? <laughs> also, we should, we should play with different lubes sometime. That's also fun. Okay. okay. Okay, so toys and tools. Think about adaptive equipment. If your hands are not working, if you've got some arthritis, neuropathy, circulatory problems, Um, hormonal issues or pelvic floor issues remember think about adaptive equipment because sex over 60 it's a journey it's not always going to end with the big o but for arthritis or injuries or repetitive motion or erection issues or anything like that you can find ease or comfort through lots of different toys and believe me you know (laughs) when I tell you there is a market out there for older adult sexuality. This is the first time, Bill, that I ever felt like capitalism was working for <laughs> us. <laughs> you know, because, well, you know, the, the Pew Research Center says that every day in the US for the next 10 years, 10,000 people will turn 65. That is a huge consumer market. Okay, toys and tools. And number seven, condoms. Condoms and dental dams are not just for pregnancy prevention you know that STIs, sexually transmitted infections, are still spreading among older adults, and it's a real issue, and it's an important one for you to be protecting yourself against.
0: Yeah, I want to point out, and, and, did you watch the series, uh, Grace and Frankie? Oh, sure. Uh, so Love them. Yeah, that was a fabulous, yeah, yeah, fabulous yeah, yeah. series. Uh,
11: and they really, you know what I loved about it? They really embodied older adults enjoying sex and their kids were just completely taken (laughs) in the
0: conversations with the kids and 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 the product they uh, developed and and, oh my goodness and
11: the kids were grossed out (laughs) anyway um number eight be prep and pep alert so according to the centers for disease control and prevention almost 20 percent of all new hiv diagnoses are among people over 50 and so if you're thinking like you don't have to worry about it, or what's it due to? Is it because of increased use of Viagra or Cialis? It's mostly due to medical professionals ignoring older adult sexuality. So remember that PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, and PEP for post-exposure prophylaxis are available, and you can talk with your um, primary care physician or your uh, nurse practitioner and make sure that you are getting protected. Um, And one more thing about viral count. Uh, if your viral count becomes undetectable, it means you're untransmissible. So make sure that you know that, you know enough about your HIV status, um, but also get tested. Let me ask you this. Do yeah.
0: doctors uh, have the appropriate, your, does your primary care physician have appropriate amount of knowledge about no. this? Because I, th- I think, I think <laughs> well, there's think Well, they might this-
11: have knowledge, but they don't have much training. Um, somebody I know did a really interesting um, research project on medical schools, attempts to train their docs in sexual medicine, and they found that people were getting on average one hour, one hour, not one credit hour, one hour throughout medical school, so that's pretty bad.
0: So go to your primary care physicians, your 70, let's say, hypothetically, yeah. in your 70s or Good 80s point. and say, I Good want to point. talk about sex. And, and,
11: and they're going to cringe probably like your kids would. <laughs> right, right. So you've got to be educating them. All right, two more. Don't try to iron out the wrinkles. If you're afraid to look at your body, remember what's inside counts. We spent so many years lying about our age when we were younger. We tried to act older, and now we try to act younger. It's crazy. It's ageism, so why not make it? this a time when we say the heck with all that? And
0: you're probably in the dark, so no one's noticing. There
11: you go, and you're laying about one quarter inch away from each other. Nobody's seeing any of it. And finally, number 10, be an explorer. Be an adventurer. Remember, know yourself. Learn how to ask and how to listen. And remember, it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah, but I,
0: I would think that those conversations are as awkward Maybe, or maybe less awkward when you're older than when you're younger. I mean, it was hard to have conversations when uh, we were young and we were sort of in the middle of the sexual revolution,
11: but still hard to talk about. I think it's true, but I think also, um, as we get older, we know time is short, and we know that pleasure could be the, the real change for us that could make life so much sweeter.
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to end there But we have 30 more seconds <laughs> Dan, could you play out Appropriate music for us? I can Wow Maybe just maybe just redo that last statement From Jane Fleischman Doctor, thank you so much For being with us yeah. We've been talking To Dr. Jane Fleischman On Sex Matters On Talk the Talk
7: Will you still be sending me valentine Birthday greetings Bottle of wine If I'd be down Till quarter to three would you lock the door, will you still need me, will you still feed me, when I'm 64?
8: Find local news and local talk for
3: the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist
2: where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. WHMP Northampton and W R S I H D Two Turners Falls. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
0: Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. We are joined By members of Valley Light Opera, because we want you to know about the upcoming Gilbert and Sullivan performance, six performances, at least six days, maybe more performances, at the Academy of Music. So pleased that we can have with us Kathy Blaisdell, who is a member of Valley Light Opera, indeed the coordinating producer of Valley Light Opera, and Tom Griffin, who is a player in Valley Light Opera, this production. Let's start with you, if I might, please, Kathy Blaisdell. What's the opera and... For those who don't know about Valley Light Opera and will have the great pleasure of seeing it for the first seeing Valley Light Opera for the first time at the Academy of Music at the beginning of November, tell us about Valley Light Opera and then tell us about this Gilbert and Sullivan that you're producing.
10: This is, uh, Gil- this is Gilbert and Sullivan's um, production that was produced in 1882. It's called Iolanthe, and it is uh, a bit of a send-up of uh, of you know conflicts in parliament but using fairies and peers of parliament as the as the main players um the the iolanthe is is a fairy who had the temerity to marry immortal the lord chancellor uh and that was 25 years ago uh, she was banished and the opera starts when the queen of the fairies i'm playing the queen of the fairies but the queen of the fairies brings her back from banishment and then uh a little bit of topsy turvydom ensues as they go through the rest of the show. Uh, The show is performing. We are performing at the Academy of Music on November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, and also the 10th, the 11th, and the 12th, so two weekends, the first two weekends in November. The evening shows are Friday and Saturday, the 3rd, 4th, 10th, and 11th, and then we have Saturday matinees on the 5th and the 12th.
0: Yeah. And the dog in the background, I'd like to thank the dog for participating and having all of those opinions and being willing to share them. Listen, I would like to know to know this Uh, for those who say opera. I don't know about opera, but Valley Light Opera is different. And I'd like to know if you see a difference between light opera and musical theater, because I'm not sure I know the difference. But can you help me out on that?
10: Well, they didn't have musical theater was not a thing in the 1800s, but um, but light opera was definitely much more popular as time went on, and I think that it would be the precursor to what we think of as musicals now. Um, lots of dialogue, lots of advancing the plot with uh, with musical numbers. It's not just it's not just the emotion that's that's being depicted in the musical numbers. There's um, There's there's action and other other plot advancement that goes on, but it's it's designed to end lightheartedly and with a lot of fun. And Gilbert and Sullivan were just masters at putting these great lyrics with a lot of twists and turns, and and then the total topsy turvy thing at the end that just upends everything, which is ridiculous and fun. But uh, but they were—they were. You know, Gilbert's lyrics and then uh, Sullivan's fab- fabulous music were just a huge hit uh, at the time that they came out. And they have stayed with us now for, hundred, you know, 125 years of, of Topsy-Turvy Dome. There are lots of people in the world who just adore Gilbert and Sullivan shows. And Iolanthe is a real favorite um uh uh, of a lot of the folks who are very familiar with gilbert and sullivan because the music is so good and it's such a fun show to um to perform and also to watch um it's also they also tend to be relatable you know they're making fun of of politics a little bit in this show, and um, and that's relatable. Uh, they're making fun of grand opera. You know, having fairies in a show was a bit of a send up on Wagner. Um, so so there was a so that's all tied that's all tied together, and it's and it's why I think it's endured, and uh, and that people enjoy seeing the show so much.
0: How many members are there of Valley Light Opera, and how many members are there in this cast, give or take?
10: There are about 30 people in the cast, a little bit more than that, and there are about 30 people in the orchestra. We have a full orchestra. That's something that's not typical in musicals, modern day musicals. Um, it was more typical in the mid 20th century with modern day musicals, but even mm. some of those that are getting revised are, are cutting back on orchestra. So to have a full orchestra as, as part of your as part of the show is something that's very special and unique uh, as well.
0: Well, speaking about the players in the cast of Iolanthe, uh, let us turn to Tom Griffin, who is in fact a player in this play, in this light opera. Uh, Tom, want to tell us about your character and maybe even give us a sample of what the character does?
12: Well, my character is the Lord Chancellor who is in charge of the wards of state, wards of chancery. And I have the misfortune to be singularly attracted to one of them, uh, but I'm in a perplexing situation. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, My Lords, I appreciate the force of your remarks, but as the Lord Chancellor in love with a ward of his own court, what is his position? Can he give his own consent to his own marriage with his own ward? Can he marry his own ward without his own consent? And if he marry his own ward without his co- own consent, can he commit himself co- for contempt of his own court? And if he commit himself for contempt of his own court, can he appear by counsel before himself to move for arrest rest of his own judgment? Oh, my lords, it is indeed painful to have to sit upon a wall sack stuffed with thorns such as these, and <laughs> so on. <laughs>
0: that, was my- that was great, that was great. Um
12: my third or fourth time performing this role over the last forty years, and it's I'm doubt my last because well, i'm seventy three.
0: <laughs> it's okay. we, we think seventy three is a great number. Listen. Uh, I would like to know have you how long have you been performing with Valley Light Opera? And what was your uh, theatrical uh, background before Valley Light Opera?
12: Well, I mean, I've always performed since i was five and all through grammar school and everything and i've, I've always i've always been musical uh, i was the church organist starting when i was 12. um but then i didn't really do anything because i was studied agronomy in college and i just didn't you know i commuted i was already married anyway uh, when i was about 30 i just tried out for a, a, a light opera company down in connecticut and I've been doing it ever since. Wow, is this one of your favorite roles? Well, they're all so very different. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a good role.
0: <laughs> and do do you sing in the opera?
12: Uh, well, yes, quite a bit. But some of it isn't exactly singing. It's more, uh, <laughs> well, I guess you'd call it singing. <laughs> Although our musical director prefers it actual notes rather than what I usually tell him. I just take them as suggestions (laughs) rather than actual (laughs) uh, musical direction.
0: How much fun is it to be in this play?
12: Oh, well, uh, it's a lot of fun. First of all, you get to meet all the people in the cast, which is always fun. And, uh, It would be a lot less fun if it was my first time doing it because you you don't remember things as well when you're 73 (laughs) as you did when you were 33 you know so it's a lot harder to make changes and things but it's easy to be a principal because there's always a hole down in front so you don't have to really remember blocking all it's not that complicated there's a place for you and it's pretty obvious
0: well, let me let me go back, if if I might, to uh, Kathy Blaisdell and ask you, in terms of the cast, the casting of this, did you go out and find people or are these people who is the cast comprised of people who are engaged regularly with Valley Light Opera?
10: Well, both. We have open auditions. Uh, we hold them in May for um, then we start rehearsals in September. Uh, and we do that because we like people to have a chance for the summer to really sort of dig into the parts. Um, I've been a member of Valley Light Opera since 2005, and uh, my husband started in 2004. He's the director of the show. Um, and And we've been involved for a long time and uh, and several of the folks in the cast have also been involved, but other people are brand new that they they, they found the group. You know because of the open auditions or because they had friends who performed in the group for a while or they were looking for something like this and that that whole community theater aspect of it to be able to embrace folks who have been around for a while and folks who just really want to try this exciting fun thing we, we have a place for all of them. We need people to help set, build sets. We need to, uh, people to help with costumes. Uh, and the, the sets and the costumes, they're all part of what make this magical and exciting and fun to do. Okay. Um,
0: tell, tell us when and where it is and how people can buy their tickets, please.
10: Okay. So the show is at the Academy of Music. It is Friday, Saturday, and Sundays on November 11th I'm sorry November 3rd 4th and 5th and November 10th 11th and 12th and the matinees are on Sundays the 5th and the 12th and the evening shows are at 730 uh, matinees are at 2 and the Academy of Music is where you go to the website to order the tickets.
0: Okay. Just Google Academy of Music Northampton and you will get there and be able to pick your seats. I can't wait to watch. I can't wa- wait to watch and to see this play, Iolanthe. The Valley Light Opera is fabulous. You do a great job. It's so much fun. And I appreciate your being with us to let our audience know about, and let our listeners know about, Valley Light Opera and this new Gilbert and Sullivan. Production again November 3, 4, and 5, 10, 11, and 12. Tickets available at the Academy of Music. Kathy Blaisdell and Tom Griffin, thanks so very much. Break a leg. Thank
12: You're very you. welcome. Bye now.
2: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP.
3: When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime.
2: Fellow Americans, Noble Gold Investments is here to democratize your dollars. Imagine your wealth is a treasure chest. In a world full of paper money that's as unstable as a house of cards, Noble Gold Investments offers you the solid gold and silver keys to that chest. Don't just take it from me. Lillian P. said, Ben guided me flawlessly from purchase to receipt. And Ronald, a retired CPA, has been totally satisfied since 2019. Noble Gold Investments isn't just a company. It's your financial guardian for life. It stands for integrity, efficiency, and the American. Way. And this month, with any qualifying precious metals IRA, you'll receive a free 5-ounce solid silver America the Beautiful Bullion coin. Did we mention free? Noble Gold Investments is here to help you if you want to invest in gold or silver. Just use the promo code GOLD. Go to NobleGoldInvestments.com now. NobleGoldInvestments.com, the only gold company you should trust. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Investing in precious metals, including gold, involves risks. Consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: We are so pleased to have with us back in the studio Julie Lichtenberg, who is the co director of the performance project, and so pleased that she can be with us so that you can learn about the upcoming performance of. The performance project. Julie, for those of our listeners who say that's an awful lot of performance projects in one introduction, tell us what it is and tell us what it does. You've been around, the project's been around for a long time, you've done amazing work, and then we're going to get to another person who's here with us in the studio, one of the cast members, but tell us first about the performance project.
13: Well, um, to capture 23 years in a nutshell, um, the performance project's um, collaborates with um, people in, um, right now, with young people in the Springfield community, but we go way back to the Hampshire jail at, in our beginnings, to create theater that um, shares stories that need to be told.
0: And there is a story that needs to be told, and the Performance Project is going to be telling it, I think, this weekend at, in here in Northampton? Yep. Tell us about that.
13: Um, so the performance is called Mother Tongue, and it is a multilingual physical theater performance um, created over a period of 18 months. I'm going to pass this to Moise, um, who is one of the ensemble members, who can talk a little bit about the show. Um, but it is this Saturday at 7 p.m. at the um, UU, the Unitarian um, Unitarian Universal.
0: Universal Society of Northampton.
13: Thank you. and uh, <laughs> Yes, and it's it's a really powerful performance. Um, Moise, and, would you like to... And yeah.
0: what time is it? When it's is at it? 7
13: p.m., and tickets can be um, found. The ticket link is on our website, performanceproject.org.
0: Performanceproject.org. Yes. You can buy tickets to this, this yes. weekend's performance. How many performances?
13: There is one show right now in um, Northampton. The piece is touring. We just performed last week in Springfield, and we're we received a National Endowment of the Arts grant to tour this piece, it's very exciting. It's a real new chapter for um, oh. the performance project.
0: Great, well let's turn to Moise, uh, yeah. MJ, and tell us about the piece, tell us what it's about, and tell us why it's meaningful
9: for you. Thank you, thank you. Um, my name's MJ, like Julie said. I'm part of the ensemble member. Um, the piece, um, it's called Mother Tongue, and Personally, what it means to me um, is combining cultures and difficulties and struggles that all of us go go through um, and putting all of it in one show. And it combines um, different languages um, from all over the place and difficulties from all over the place, all of the countries and combining them and putting them to one show, yeah. How long have you been involved in uh, First Generation and or the performance project? And how did you come to be involved? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, I've been in First Generation, I would say, two two years and a half now. Um, I was introduced to Julie by my sister. Her name is um, Julita. And it was just um, another busy day in the summer, and, and my sister was looking for a part-time uh, job in the summer and Julie happened to be running uh the organization and my sister happened to be one of the people that were interested so she called me and I was interested in it so that's and that's how it got to me Julie Lichtenberg do you act in this play do you sing how do you, what is your role um my role in this piece I'm acting um can't say I'm a singer. I'm a singer, but I just don't sing in a piece. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I would like to know, let me go back to, uh, to Julie for just a moment. Uh, sometimes I identify you as being with first generation. Sometime with the performance project. Uh, this performance, the title of it is Mother Tongue. Uh, what's the relationship between first gen- generation, first gen, and the performance project?
13: So the performance project is an organization, I guess, that started, I mean, we we think of ourselves more as a multi-generational community, but the Performance Project got its name back in 2003, 2004, when we started writing grants um, as an organization. Um, First Generation is a youth program in Springfield um, that invites youth to spend time in artistic and leadership training, and they um, begin to also become peer mentors, and they mentor younger children. And they train with professional artists and spend, usually it's over a year creating a performance, and then they perform it, they facilitate conversations around it, and Mother Tongue specifically talks about language, culture, the struggle of different um, communities who have to leave their homelands and what they find when they come to the United States. Mm. Um, And it it wraps itself into um, racism in the U.S. and the school-to-prison pipeline. So it really merges global stories with local stories um, from the perspective of uh, young people coming to the United States, but also Holyoke and Springfield youth um there's uh pieces about transphobia about hypermasculinity and um struggling as a young black man to be who you really are and not who society sees you as um there are stories about what happens when you come to the US as an 11-year-old and don't speak English in school mm-hmm. um and they're surrounded by Spanish and English
0: we are speaking with Julie Lichtenberg, who is the fair to say, the founder of First Gen and is the co director of the Performance Project. We are talking about mother tongue, which is being performed by First Gen, First Generation Stories of Culture, Struggle, Identity, and Revolution. Saturday, October twenty eighth, seven o'clock at the Unitarian Society here in Northampton, two twenty Main Street. Tickets are available through the Unitarian Society or through first gen or first Just performance project where our do we web- find tickets
13: okay it's on brown paper tickets but the link is on our website and Just your
0: website is
13: performanceproject.org there are actually only 20 something tickets left Wow
0: congratulations thank let me you, thank l- you. L- let me ask that uh, MJ mm-hmm. uh, working with other young people mm-hmm. on putting this together mm-hmm. what has that felt like what has it meant to you and how many of you put this performance
9: together? Um, It means a lot to me um, by working um, um, with people that are the same age as me. Um, And how old are you? I am 17. And it opens my eyes, including my mind, just um, by listening to other stories who are the same age as me and who have um, been going through some of the stuff that I've been going through. And some of them are immigrants, just like me. So where are you from? I'm from Tanzania, so East African con- uh, country. So being in a place where I can relate to a lot of things that people in the same age as me, it opens my mind a lot. and. It helps me um, focus and experience new stuff.
0: Did you learn something by working with your uh, co-writers and producers, something you didn't expect?
9: Oh yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned how to improve my English. Um, I learned how to use my voice in public. Um, I learned how to be confident in in my own body. There's a lot of stuff that I learned in first generation that I wasn't able to learn outside of first generation. So there's a lot that I learned.
0: How many different countries are people from who are either writers or performers in Mother Tongue?
9: More or less. Mm. I might take a guess. Okay. Around four or... I in, think there's more.
13: I mean, in Mother Tongue specifically, yes. um, <clears throat> we represent Puerto Rico,
9: mm-hmm. Congo,
13: and Tanzania because Moise's family is from Congo, and, they, and he tells his father's story as well right. as his story. Congo,
0: the DRC? Yes, yeah. That's right.
13: And then um, Montaser and Star are from Darfur, and their family is also from South Sudan, wow and then we have nepal and bhutan so f- these are the young people interviewed their parents and so there are ancestral stories as well as their stories of of diaspora and their experiences here in the us
0: and this is through song through acting through poetry wh- wh- not so does- much
13: song um it's physical theater so it, you people would see it as storytelling and movement um and and theater um We have some writers in our group, and then a lot of the work is put together through um, transcribing interviews and turning it into stage, physical theater. MJ,
0: you are from East Africa? Yes. And how long have you been in the United States?
9: Um, Seven years. I've been in the United States for seven years now.
0: You're 17? Yes. Wow. And English is not your native language?
9: No. No. Wow, and what is your native language? Um, my native language is Kibembe.
0: Wow. Yeah. And did you speak English when you came to to the this country?
9: To be honest, no, I didn't really understand a word of English. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow.
0: Yeah. You are an amazing interviewee. I mean, and I think this stories that is told. Let me ask one more question in that regard. Are the stories similar in some ways? Is there a thread that runs runs through them that we will see in this production of Mother Tongue?
9: Um, I would say some of the stories in Mother Tongue aren't quite similar because um, all of us um, come from different places. But I can relate to some of the... Um, stories in Mother Tongue, because some of those um, stories are based on immigration, and I am, an, I am, I was part, I'm still part of the immigration um, families, so I can say, yeah, some of them are relating to, me. yeah.
0: Julie, a final word?
13: Um, the, what I hope, we, we've been, I think what the piece is doing for a lot of people is expanding what their ideas about revolution Mm. and what their concept is of mother tongue as well. Those two concepts. Mother tongue
0: meaning what?
13: Well, mother tongue, we think of mother tongue as being our first language, right? Mm -hmm. But there's many, just like there's many ways to think of first generation, there's also other ways to think of mother tongue. So I'm going to leave that. If people want to think about it, they can come. See the performance.
0: Mother Tongue by First Generation and the Performance Project Stories of Culture, Struggle, Identity, and Revolution. This Saturday, one performance only. This Saturday, October 28th, 7 o'clock at the Unitarian Society here in Northampton on Main Street, of course. Julie and MJ, thank you both so very much for all you do for all of us. Break a leg. Thank you. <laughs>
2: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
4: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Families in need of emergency shelter are being sent by the state to live at the Knights Inn in Hadley. The state's Executive Office of Housing and Livable Communities plans to place more than 30 individuals at the Route 9 motel because the state's emergency shelter system is nearing capacity. Hadley Town Administrator Carolyn Brennan has assembled a task force to address the basic needs of the people living there, made up of members of the town's public safety departments, building commissioners, schools, and others. A dozen school-aged children are among the people moving into the nights Inn. The state will pay all costs associated with the housing, food, supplies necessary to care for the displaced people. Northwestern DA David Sullivan spoke at a statehouse hearing supporting the placement of safe drug consumption sites as urgent and necessary. The proposal includes a 10-year pilot program for supervised community injection sites to help prevent the spread of infectious diseases and potential overdoses. Similar sites have opened in New York and Rhode Island, while Massachusetts policymakers consider the legality of the sites from the federal government. Deerfield voters approved the borrowing of up to $5 million for road repairs after this summer's storms had a detrimental impact on the roadways. The borrowing must also pass at an upcoming special election. The town meeting also included a vote on the town acquiring the St. James Church on North Main Street with $420,000 in Community Preservation Act funds, which residents also approved.
6: Well, we're going to be in for a warm day today. Highs are getting into the high 60s, potentially even the low 70s. We're going to be seeing a lot of cloud cover, but that won't let you escape from the heat as we see temperatures in this evening go into the high 40s and the low 50s. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP.
4: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
8: Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the Business Journal of Western Mass. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You wanna let people know? That's easy, talk to Hannah. Tell her you wanna have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event, need donations, volunteers? Talk to Hannah, she'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost.
1: Hi, it's Hannah, email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400.
8: WHMP news, information and the arts and messages from community nonprofits.
2: Sunday mornings on WHMP means Polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from eight till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to
8: you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care.
2: It's Polka Carousel, WHMP.
4: I'm Sarah McEwen, the Nursing Director for Emergency and Ambulatory Services at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Community hospitals are the cornerstone of health, healing, and well-being for our local community. It's a privilege and a pleasure to take care of our community, of you and the people you love. During this season of thanks, the Cooley Dickinson team is grateful to the community that supports us through your kind words, generous gifts, and legacy plans. Please visit us at cooleydickinson.org giving.
2: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: We welcome back to the show Mara Breen, who is a professor at Mount Holyoke College, a professor of cognition, attention, perception, and she runs the speech lab as well. Interestingly, she has her undergraduate degree from Hampshire College and her doctorate in cognitive science from MIT. We had her on the show relatively recently, and there was just so much more we wanted to talk to the professor about that we asked her to come back, and she graciously said she would do that. So here we are. Professor Mara Breen, thank you so much for being back with us. I'd like to begin by asking something that I know is not the focus of your research, uh, but there was an article in today's paper about psychologists uh, discovering this reaction that people have to having a perception that someone is behind them, even though there isn't. And we'll leave it aside for a moment. Those details are not really that important. But then they hear voices. It's not, it's not something that's uh, uh, somehow uh, an affliction of mental disease. It is a part of the human condition. We hear voices, we hear words where there are no words, or we hear different words from what were actually spoken, or we read words that are different from what is actually written, which is very much in the wheelhouse of your research and your teaching. So can you tell us about that, please?
14: Sure. Um, and and Bill, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, so, right, this phenomenon of hearing voices is fascinating. First, you know, on the one hand, in from a sort of clinical perspective, and so we can talk about, you know, the experience of voice hearers, but I think what you're asking about is different from that. So not as a sort of clinical condition, not something that we would call a psychological disorder per se, but as part of the, natural experience of perception in the world. Exactly. And so the thing is, it turns out that actually um, speech perception is not an easy task. Uh, We sort of, we think it is because we do it all the time, but it it actually takes a lot of um, top-down influence. So, of course, how do we understand speech? Well, there's a lot of, there's bottom-up, meaning there's information that is actually coming into our ears, coming into our auditory systems. but. The way that we understand speech, the way that we understand language also depends a lot on our experience with a language. Um, so for example, you know, as you learn more about a language, you are able to make better predictions about the kinds of things that you're going to be able to hear. And So what that tells us, right, the importance of top-down information, we can see it in cases where we do, in fact, imagine, say, voices that aren't there, music that isn't there, or even sounds that aren't linguistic, but we, in fact, perceive them as linguistic. And so the idea here is that we are working so hard to always create meaning out of the, in some some senses, random input that comes into our perceptual systems. And we are always so focused on trying to generate meaning that we can, in fact, generate meaning even when there is no meaning in the signal that's coming in. So um, in cognitive psychology, there are lots of interesting demonstrations of how you can actually shift people's percepts of incoming information by changing their expectations or changing the things that they might predict about what they're hearing.
0: I'd like to stay with this topic of predicting what we are hearing and or predicting what we are about to read. One thing I have been struck with in in, uh, trying to write a, a couple books and writing a column regularly is that proofreading is an art that requires you to do something other than read. Sometimes it requires you to read out loud because the words that you could have sworn were in that sentence aren't there sometimes reading out loud, sometimes reading backwards, uh, just so you can see what the words are, because what our eyes see or what our brain says is on the page or what our ears tell us we have just heard is often what we expect, but not what we actually heard or saw. Can you explain that?
14: Um, Well, so it it is, in fact, just like you're saying. So if I have written something and... You know when you're writing a column maybe that's similar to me writing a journal article and i have agonized over every individual word and i've maybe rewritten it many many times more times than i've wanted to and so it actually gets a little bit hard for me to focus on each individual word and so if i am reading um without for example saying things out loud it's i might just be able to gloss over things and my prediction that what I have written kind of makes sense, is gonna override perhaps that bottom-up input of what is actually on the page. But like you're saying, when you have to slow down and perhaps say every word that you wrote out loud, that's when you're gonna get that feedback that says, oh, wait a second, that's not what I had predicted, but I wouldn't know it until I had actually taken the time to vocalize, verbalize the things that were written on the page. but there's lots of examples where we can see how our expectations, like I said, can override the incoming information. There's a very famous example. I just, I just played it for students in my class the other day where um, a speech scientist took um, the word legislature and took out the S in the middle, right? The legislature and replaced that S with a cough. And so you hear the word legislature and you hear a cough And the the fact that you hear that cough over where the S is means that you actually don't perceive the missing S. You very easily just hear it as the complete word legislature. And it is because once again, you have this strong top-down prediction of that is the word that I'm gonna hear. And then because you have enough kind of uncertainty about what's coming in, because the cough is kind of masking where that S has been removed, you can very easily just fill it in with your expectation.
0: In that regard, uh, I'd appreciate your perspective on this. One thing that uh, lawyers, criminal lawyers in particular, know is that eyewitness identification is notoriously inaccurate. And yet people get on the witness stand and say, I swear that was the person I saw. They're not lying. They are sincere Mm -hmm. and juries believe them and innocent people go to prison for decades what's that is that a matter of well it's our lying eyes explain this phenomenon if you could please
14: yeah that's um that's really great that's a a really fundamental uh challenge um so a lot of this has to do with um our, our sort of misunderstanding about the way our memories work so um we kind of maybe think that the way our memory works is like a video camera and we just kind of go through life recording everything that happens but that is certainly not the case Um, and in fact what we know is that memory is constructed over and over again by which i mean every time you pull something say from long-term memory into your sort of conscious working memory at the time the possibility of that it's possible that that memory could change, and that e- and that things that are happening in the current moment could then color that memory. Um, and what we know is that every single time we bring a memory into consciousness, it's malleable, it's changeable. So what that means is, um, if you if you had an experience, right? Often, eyewitness testimony is important in in very um, traumatic situations, right? Um, challenging situations you may not have encoded it correctly the first time because of the heightened emotionality of the scenario but moreover every time you are asked to recall that memory it's possible that it can be changed and what that means is as you recall that memory if there's other sort of suggestive evidence that comes in that can change how you perceive so there's a very famous study that we talk about in uh, intro psych by um a scientist elizabeth loftus she had participants watch uh a car crash, so an accident between two cars. Um, And after people watched the accident, she would ask them a simple question. She would say, how fast were the cars going when they bumped into each other? Or she would ask them, how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other? And it turns out that just changing the way that you describe the interaction between those two cars as either bumping or smashing, actually leads to different estimates about how fast the cars were going. And so if you say how fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other, people will give a higher estimate of uh, how fast the cars were going. So this is an example of how suggestibility can then influence the way that we remember things, right? Even things that we explicitly saw.
0: We are speaking with Professor Mara Breen, who is a professor of psychology in the psychology and education department at Mount Holyoke College. She directs the cognition, attention, perception, and speech lab at the college. I would like to follow up this question that we've been discussing with one other aspect of uh, criminal law that uh, uh, keeps bothering me, um, has for years. It's the story of the bar fight. And everyone thinks, well, everyone's been drinking, and that's why 20 different people described what could have been 20 different events. It's just not the same place or time. You would not recognize one from the other. And yet I think it's not just a matter of alcohol. It's a matter of who the person is at that moment that has them perceive of that interaction very differently. She can't hear me. Well, okay, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We're going to fix the technical problems right now.
2: ...mix of sweet and bold heat
0: new recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice, get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department.
10: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
2: To talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
4: Here comes the money.
2: You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP.
4: Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 8.15, 12.15, and 4.15.
2: When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
0: We we continue our conversation. Technology notwithstanding. We continue our conversation with Mount Holyoke College Professor Mara Breen. She is a professor of psychology in the psychology and education department. And we are talking about her field of expertise, which is perception why we hear and see what really actually isn't there objectively. I want to go back to this question of the bar fight. Why, leaving aside the question of the influence of alcohol, 10 or 20 different people see 10 or 20 different fights. Why?
14: The first thing um, is that we are all limited in our ability to take in all of the information. So um, we can't possibly process everything that is going on. We can't see everything that is happening. We can't hear every sound around us, right? This is just limited limitations on our cognitive processing. So in a chaotic scene, like a bar fight, every individual person is going to be focused on different features of that event right if you have 10 or 20 people um they're all going to have a different individualized experience moreover and kind of checking back with what i had said about top-down processing the way that our memory works is we tend to remember things that are consistent with our own self-image so for example um in a bar fight right i always think that right not that I get in a lot of bar fights, but, but when I do, right, I, know, I know I'm not to blame. I know that I was just responding to the circumstances of the situation and someone else was the aggressor. I was just defending myself. And so that means that probably my memory is going to make me look a little bit better than someone else who is gonna remember it in a way that makes them look better, right? So our own self, um, our own self image is going to then influence what we remember about that scene.
0: so when a a person swears to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth they're actually doing their best they just could be 90 percent wrong
14: correct correct and 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 you raise an important point which is that we can actually come to believe in correct memories if we get enough information after the fact that is consistent with that so um I I talk a lot with my students about how incorrect our autobiographical memories, our memories for our lifetimes can be. And as you get older, if you have siblings, you have a gift in that they can check you on certain things, right? So I have two sisters and I can say to my sisters, hey, do you remember that thing when I did that? And then my sister will be like, that wasn't you, that was me. But yet we can we can, because we observed it, we can then over time start to change what actually happened and in fact, Right As I said before, every time we remember, we bring a memory to mind, it can change. And so what that means is the more often you recall a memory, the more likely it is to change. And so we have to think about that when we think about, for example, eyewitness testimony, right? How many times is a, a suspect or um, or an old witness being interviewed by the police? Is it possible that that story could then change with each iteration because we understand how Um, In fact, our memories for things can change over time.
0: So, Professor, is there also a uh, difference in how we initially perceive? Let me take 15 or 20 seconds to explain. I sit here in the studio. I'm sitting Mm -hmm. 10 feet across from someone. Um, They can come up to me a few months later and say, oh, we had this wonderful conversation. I don't know who the person is. I mean, I really just don't recognize them. They recognize me. On the other hand... I can tell them to a very significant degree of accuracy exactly what they said, and I, I, you know it's, it's the difference I guess, of what what how our minds work and i'd appreciate uh, I'd her- appreciate your explaining these embarrassing moments for me <laughs> <laughs>
14: yeah, right, definitely embarrassing, yeah right i i uh i get so frustrated with as i get older my inability to remember names which i have always been so proud of myself and so i think what one of the things that contributes to that is once again like how are you how are you interpreting the conversation and what's important to you about the conversation and so even when we're having these conversations we can individually be focused on different components of it right so maybe um, you're more focused on the individual words that are being said and therefore you don't necessarily have the attention to process everything about that person visually um, and and again it's like what's going to be important to you so recognizing that we can't possibly perceive, let alone remember, every interaction that we have and every detail from our environments, we're going to prioritize remembering and focusing on those features that are most critical to us and what we want to get out of that interaction at the time.
0: We are speaking with Professor Mara Breen. And then we will,
14: that is not most relevant.
0: Thank you. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, We are speaking with Professor Mara Breen, professor of psychology at Mount Holyoke College, where she directs the Cognition, Attention, Perception and Speech Lab. What is that lab? What do you do there?
14: Um, Yeah, great question. So we are really interested in language. Um, We're interested in how people both produce language and how they perceive. Um, We're interested in the cognitive processes that support that. So just like we've been talking about, I'm interested in how uh, attentional processes influence how we perceive language. Um, I'm also interested in um, i'm very much interested in how we can organize information in time Um, and we look at that through not only a language lens but also through a musical lens and ultimately what we're trying to understand is um, how can the organizational features of sound in particular rhythmic structure and phrasing structure how does that help people um, more effectively understand language Um, and so I've done a lot of work um, with adults asking these questions. We've looked at reading studies, we've looked at um, perceiving language, we've looked at spoken production, and currently we're really focused on literacy development. So we're um, currently involved in a study with six to 10 year olds, and we're focusing on how do their abilities to organize sound in time predict their ability to be good readers. So that is, are kids who are better at Uh, organizing sound um, within their brains, are they actually also better at reading comprehension? And so we've got a um, long-term study where we're uh, recruiting kids 6 to 10 uh, to come to our lab, which is currently located down in Springfield, um, to participate in our studies there.
0: Is all this work being done in English?
14: That's a good question. Um, in my lab, we mostly work in English um, because that is um, you know, who, who, who is here in our environment. Um, but uh, work in reading and work in language Um, it's critically important that we explore all of these features across languages because languages can vary so dramatically. Um, I'm happy to say that in my lab, we have explored different languages. So um, we've done some work on um, Spanish production. Um, I've even done some work on Chinese and the features of um, production of Chinese sentences uh, in collaboration with my students who speak Spanish as a native language or speak Chinese as a native language. And what we're ultimately really interested in is figuring out what's common across all these different languages.
0: Well, we are going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Professor Mara Breen. Please come back. I have so much more to ask you. I hope you will. Professors, oh, I would
10: love to. So thank much, you so much, Bill.
0: Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this. This has just been fascinating for me and I hope for and I think for our listeners. Let me turn, if I might, to our news director who wants to give us the news about tonight's broadcast.
4: I just want to talk about the fact yes, that you, you are going to be out, and uh, are you going to be in the competition itself, or will you just be commentating?
0: No, 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 no. <laughs> I, was in, I was in the Spelling Bee competition once. Once was, once was enough for my team. We did get through the first round. I take great pride in that, and I thought we should leave an, well enough alone.
4: <laughs> well, you will be out. I just wanted everybody to know what time it is and the location, and you're going to be out there with Steve Sanderson yes. from our sister station.
0: Yes, we're going to be broadcasting from the Northampton Education Foundation Spelling Bee at Bombeck Center for Arts and Equity. Tonight, beginning at, I think, 6 o'clock, and we are going to make fun and fascinating our description of how paint dries, people spelling. (laughs) It's really fun. It's really interesting. (laughs) 6 o'clock tonight, we'll be doing it live from Bombex.
4: All right. Looking forward to that. That is going to be with Bill, of course, and Steve Sanderson. We will be broadcasting live starting at 6 o'clock, so make sure you tune in for that. It is going to be great. Stick around, too. We've got a rebroadcast of Talk the Talk coming up from 4 to 6 today.
10: Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's
7: more time to save on your mortgage closing costs.
10: That's right, there's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations.
14: Our local experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have.
10: So apply online or come see us in person receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you.
14: Close by November 30th. Be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice.
10: Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can
2: count on your friends at the co-op. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turners Falls, WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station.